Michael McMullen, welcome once again to the World Snooker Tour podcast, where my guest this week is someone who, in his day, was one of the best players in the world, and who remains one of the best talkers in the game. <laughs> it's the 1991 World and UK champion, John Paris. John, welcome along. Thank you. It's the only thing I, I can do now, Mike, <laughs> is talk. <laughs> You've told the story a million times about how you started playing snooker because you used to play crown green bowling and it rained and you and mm. your dad went and had a game. One thing I've always wondered is, were you good at bowling? I was actually all right, yeah. Um, me and my father won quite a few doubles tournaments together, but I actually played in the league. I won a few trophies as a junior and I ended up playing at the, 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 big, the big green which is sadly now closed and not used, is Waterloo in Blackpool. And I got to the quarterfinal of the juniors there, so I could play a little bit, yeah. And funny enough, a few weeks ago, I've gone and bought a new jack and got my old bowls out, and I'm going to start having a little... Because I'm actually patron for the Crown Green Bowling Society. Um, So I've got a jack the other week, and I'm going to have a little roll again and and see if I'm any good at it. But you did go off then and play snooker. And I remember you saying to me years ago something I found very interesting, that for you, one of the early attractions was just watching the balls move along the cushions, and you were just mesmerised by the whole spectacle. Yeah, I mean, it was just when I went into the club for the first time, just to see them go in the pockets and come down the rails. I'd never seen them. We've always had little six-foot tables and you always had little bags on the end. But when you saw the balls go in the pocket and then come down the rails and collect under the table, and you know, there was just something about it that, that was fascinating. And then when you saw someone who was half-decent and you watched them play and you thought, you know, that's a different level to the other people, you, you, you sort of think, oh, I'd like to get to that standard. And then, of course, you get your cue and you try yourself and hope that you do. And you had a wonderful amateur career, a lot of expectation on you when you turned pro. And you settled very quickly into the professional game. What are your early memories of the standout moments? I think probably the biggest one was qualifying for the Lada Classic. That was mm. the first thing. And, and playing Alex Higgins in front of 2,000 people. Um, Alex was just, you know, one of the greatest people to ever hold a cue. And, but it, it was more of his charisma and aside from his obvious talent, it was just the, everything that went with him. And he, you never knew what you are going to get. He used to have four seasons in one day as a human being. Um, he could be the nicest fellow in the world and 10 minutes later be absolutely horrible. You never knew quite what you were going to get. Um, and it was quite intimidating playing him, actually. And uh, to be there as a young lad with my velvet waistcoat on and my hair looking like the fifth Beatle, <laughs> to go out and play him in front of 2,000 people live on TV was was pretty daunting. But the fact that I, I managed to come through and everything was uh, sort of vindication for me wanting to be a professional and knew that I could handle it anyway. If you could handle that, you could handle most things. And Alex Higgins concedes, and so it's John Parrott who goes through to the quarterfinals, defeating Alex Higgins five frames to two. It was a good tournament for you, that, because it then became the Mercantile, and that was where you got to your first major final in mm. 1988, played Steve Davis and almost beat him, mm. having been way behind in the yeah. match. People who weren't around at the time, John, don't know, and you could never explain to them what a massive deal it was playing Steve Davis in a big final in those days. Oh, I mean, honestly, he's he's very self-deprecating and very modest, and he sits next to me. And I'd like to think I'm reasonably like that myself. There's not great egos between us, but he's got every reason to have one. Um, he was just the benchmark. Um, I can remember playing him very early in a UK Championship, and you know, cocky young lad playing great, whizzing my way through the field, um, end up playing Steve played the best I'd ever played in my life and lost 9-5 mm. and I'm sitting in the car going home thinking how do I beat that because he's just absolutely his cue ball was immaculate his safety was just he never gave you anything and his professional levels were just better than everybody else's 
So he did win that mercantile final against you in 88. But you didn't have to wait too long to win your first ranking title. It came just over a year later. The European Open in France. Now, it doesn't take anything away from your achievement, but it was just such a strange tournament, wasn't it? Yeah, it got transferred, I think. I think we should have been in Belgium or somewhere then. I think it was to do with the South Africans and all to do with apartheid and goodness whatever. So it was political. It got moved into Deauville. um, And I played Terry Griffiths in the final. Uh, funny enough, the, the first round was quite funny because we came out to play and there was a pl- I was playing Eddie Charlton in the first round and I introduced myself and Eddie to the audience, which was a French family who just walked through the door and seen, oh, what's this? Never seen Snigger before. And they were the only four people in there watching. Um, so it was quite a, a, an interesting start to the tournament. But I played great right the way through and then obviously Teddy was a tremendous match player um, and beat him, I think, by the odd frame just to get my first one. And funny enough, I went on a golfing holiday about three or four years ago, just before COVID, and uh, I actually went back to the... It was played in a casino down on the front, and I actually went back. Oh, had a right. photograph outside, which is a little bit of... Just because of a little bit of nostalgia, because I was staying up there, and I thought, that's where I won the tournament. And uh, I went back and had a photograph outside, and uh, I've, I've got it in the house. It's, uh, it's one nice one to keep. So inevitably then you're full of confidence going to the World Championship that year and everyone says John Parrott could actually walk off with the big prize here at the Crucible. And then on the opening day, the Hillsborough disaster happens mm-hmm. the day before you play your first match and you've spoken about that many times. But of course, Liverpool didn't play at all for the next couple of weeks. So mm-hmm. you were basically flying the flag to try to restore some joy to the city. Did you feel that over those couple of weeks? I felt it right away because I was actually at the other the other semi-final on the day was Everton were, were playing Norwich at uh, Aston Villa's ground and the bloke who, one of the lads who was with us, his two sons, he was blue but his two sons were red and they were both at Hillsborough and he was in an absolute panic to know whether his sons were alright so you know, I was there watching the game. I can't really tell you too much about the Everton Norwich game to be honest with you because nobody can really. They were all worried about what was going on there. And then, of course, the worst happened and we got all the horrendous deaths and I played with a, a black armband on. Well, what does that mean? It's as, as much as I could do as a, a sign of respect. It's not great for people who have lost their lives. But um, I was very respectful for the city that I've come from. Um, and, of course, they're still fighting today for some of the justice and, or injustices, whatever has happened over the years. But it was, yeah, it was, um, it, it was just something I wanted to do. Um, and, unfortunately, I came up short that year in a final that Steve Davis just absolutely demolished me in. But, um, yeah, it was it was not great times. So when you got to the final, you must have been feeling worn out by that as much as anything. You'd had some close matches along the way. But Steve, it's often not pointed out. He actually played so well. It wasn't just a case of you going there and not performing. He was on the top of his game. Everyone forgets he absolutely demolished Stephen in the semi-final. Mm-hmm. Um, he beat him, I think, 16-9 and comfortable. He was still playing great. He was playing far too good for everybody else. I sort of fell, I fell over the line a little bit. I was, I'd had good tournaments coming into that championship. I played a lot of snooker and I was basically getting close to hitting the wall. And I managed to somehow find my way through with determination to the final. And unfortunately, it was a match too too long and one too many. And he absolutely pulverised me like he would. Um, you know, snooker players are not there to be sympathetic to the other to the opposition. And he did the right thing. He gave me a good old drilling and I had to take it on the chin. Was it a case of there being no joy at the end of it? Could you even be pleased about getting to the final? Um, my father was, was pretty good. He summed it up. He said, look, son, he said there was absolute thousands of people entered that tournament one way or the other. He said, and you come second. He said, you know, he said, it's nothing to beat yourself up about. He said, we know why you didn't perform in the final. He said, and you know it. He said, it's important that you remember that and go back and try and do better next time. John Parrott concedes the title 
of Embassy World Snooker Champion 1989, and a hat trick goes to the fabulous Steve Davis. So the following year, you got to the semi-finals, and then the year after that, we come to the greatest moment of your career. You've often said coming into the 1991 championship, John, that you had a really good feeling going there. Mm. You hadn't had the greatest of seasons by your very high standards at that time. So where did that feeling come from? I got a new cue. Um, I got a new cue, and it was quite ironically because Jimmy White told me to go and see a cue manufacturer in London who he used to get his cues from, and he said, look, he'll sort you out. You go and get one. So long story short, I went to see him, saw a cue in the rack that I really liked. Um, I said, oh, I like that. Can you do He said, oh, he said, John, he said, someone's coming in to buy that Thursday. He said, uh, he said, I'll try and find something like it. I said, oh, never mind. Anyway, I turned up at the Masters, funny enough, a few months later, and he walks in and he's got a cue for me. He said, yeah, I'll have a look at that. And I said, that's the same piece of wood. He said, I know. He said, he, uh, he, couldn't, he didn't come in. He didn't show up to pay for it. So I said, so he said, all I've done, he said, I've taken the top off. He said, I've made it 10.2 millimetres for you. He said, I've put a new butt on, balanced it up, have a go with that. Well, I had three shots with it, and I knew that was, I said, just went, this is just unbelievable. I went back. I played with it. The first tournament I went to Ireland, I played Steve and lost in the final, 9-6 in the final of the Irish Masters to Steve. But I knew I was very close to playing great. And from that period then to when I went to Sheffield is the best period of snooker I've ever played in my life. I was, I was just... I was practicing and honestly it was scary I was making six seven eight hundreds on the spin it was just like I was playing unbelievable I was so confident in the queue everything had good I was fresh I hadn't been burnt out it's not like the other seasons where I'd played and had good tournaments so I had a good feeling going into it and people say that the way to win the world championship is to start off well and then gradually build get mm. better as each round goes by it's exactly what you did. Yeah, I had a, I had a funny enough. I played Nigel Gilbert first. It was a, it was tricky. That was a, it was a tough old game. He played really well in it. And then I, I beat Tony Knowles thirteen one, and played. I started to play properly there, and then the hardest match I had in the whole tournament was the quarter final because Terry Griffiths absolutely drilled me to the bottom cushion for consecutive sessions, and everything I got in that match, I had to I had to win. Um, he played a fabulous match. I ended up beating him thirteen ten. I think it was. And that was that was one hard match. But if I came through that, I knew my potting and my scoring was good, but I also knew the other side was because he certainly put me through the mixer. You went on to beat Steve Davis in the semi-final. And then the final, I remember you saying that was a great analogy, that first session against Jimmy White, the crowd all on his side. It was like Liverpool playing away in Europe, silenced the crowd early on. Yeah. And that opening session where you went 7-0 up, at that time, I don't know if anyone had ever played as well as that in a session at the Crucible. Well, it's nice for you to say so. I look back on it, actually, to be honest with you, and you think, oh, blimey, did I do that? Because it was, um, I think I missed one ball, maybe, in the whole thing. Um, I was pretty good, but I was, I, Alan Hughes, the compere, said to me, he's tried to speak to me twice, and I blanked him both times. He said, I knew, he said, I knew you were in the zone. He said, uh, he said, he said, usually I'll chat to anybody. He said, but he said, you, you just weren't for speaking to anyone. I said, I was just so focused to go out and do it and then to play that session and actually go and do what you want to do it's not always the way in snooker but um, yeah that was probably the best session I ever played and you saw it out nicely from there 118-11 I always love asking guys who've won the world championship John and there are very few of you what goes through your head in the final moments when you've got those last few balls and your life's dream is finally happening? Thank God that's over with. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things I did, I don't think I made it. My wife was there with us at the time and I left in the morning. I was 11, left the hotel to go to the venue. It was 11.5 in front and I was thinking, oh, please just let me win seven frames. I'm just, just <laughs> Please just let me be the champion because it'd be the worst thing in the world to have a lead like that and not win. But uh, 
thankfully for me, it's, um, we managed to nurse the lead home, and it's it's a victory that's never forgotten. And John Parrott's waited a long time for this. He's suffered some defeats and disappointments on the way, but finally the whirlwind, Jimmy White, concedes to John Parrott, and a very deserving champion. John Parrott wins the Embassy World Championship, 18 frames to 11. Great times, and then we often hear about players winning the World Championship for the first time, John, and they struggle the next year. Now, it doesn't happen quite as often, I think, as people make out. It certainly didn't happen for you, yeah. because you won two of the first three ranking events of the following season, mm. including becoming UK champion. At that time, people were starting to say, John Parrott is now the best player in the world. So mm. did you feel that? I was, I was, playing, I was playing as good as I could, and, and Stephen, by, now, by then, Stephen Hendry was the benchmark, and I'd been beating Stephen in a few matches and that that was always because he was a phenomenal player but anytime you could beat him so I'd beaten him in the final in Dubai beaten him in the final in in um, Lyon mm. and played really good in those so I was I was I was there I was got the final of the championship championship league he beat me in that but I was playing properly really was playing properly and then um, you know the, the world championship I lost to Alan McManus in a final frame decide that it was absolutely one of the hardest matches ever played in um, the year after but I lost and as I say I had, a, I had half a chance of uh, going back to back at the World Championships but he knocked me out and that was that It's amazing to think you won the World Championship the week you turned 27 and yet that proved to be the last time you played in the one table stage mm. but it wasn't as if you suddenly developed an issue with playing at the Crucible because you were a perennial quarter finalist mm. you had a lot of close finishes and you came up against some players who produced wonderful displays to see you off in the yeah. subsequent years Yeah and children arrived <laughs> Changes everything, doesn't it? It did for me because I was a known, I was an only child, and uh, my mum and dad were divorced when I was young, so it, it, I didn't really have sort of a um, the same sort of normal sort of breakfast things that other people have in the morning with the kids running around. So when my own two came, it was like uh, it did take my eye off the ball. I have to be honest with you, and I, I I got far more enjoyment so taking Josh to the park and feeding the ducks and taking Ellie out and going and, and, and just one of those things you know people are all different and I, I thought well I've won a world championship and I've won a UK and uh, you know and I was doing I went from doing seven hours practice every day that my practice dropped off a little bit and you know it, if I wanted to be completely and utterly 100% about it I should have carried on doing six seven hours every day but it wasn't me and um, I, I basically wouldn't swap it because I've got the most unbelievable relationship with my children now um, and uh, I wouldn't swap that for anything I'm, you know it's just people are all different you were number two in the world at one stage behind Steve Davis. At another time, you were number two behind Stephen Hendry. People think this year is tough. I mean, they were the guys you were up against. They destroyed opponents regularly, mm. but in very different ways, John. And you're probably as well qualified as anyone to describe to us the differences between playing those two in their heyday. Davis, the consummate match player, all round, absolutely, probably, well, certainly in the top three all-time match players. Um, I think John, John Higgins would probably be in there, certainly with him, Mark Selby. People like that, Ronnie O'Sullivan. They're in. That, they're all in that sort of ballpark. And Stephen was top three for all time in scorers. He was an absolute legend to score. He just scored for fun. And if he got in, he had a tremendous long game. And if he got in, he just made hundreds after hundred after hundred, which his record proves. You know, seven seventy-five centuries, which is he was way ahead of anybody at that era. Um, he was an absolute scoring machine and an animal of a competitor. I mean, people think I'm competitive. I keep saying to my mates to play golf with us, I said, you've got no idea. 
I said I was playing against two of the world's greatest in Davis and Hendry who wouldn't give you anything. I said, and trust me, I'm competitive, but Stephen was another level. It was masked a bit, though, wasn't it? Because of your manner and you're so friendly to everyone and always mm. seem so happy about everything. I think perhaps a lot of people didn't realise you were as tough a competitor as anyone. Well, you had to be because you'd get eaten up. Um, it's just that, you know, I, 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 you know I, I'd like to think my father did a good job of me upbringing. I'm, I'm nice and polite to most people who come and speak to me. But, um, you know, when you're competing... If you want to get the spoils, you have to be as competitive as they are. And it was honestly, if you if you managed to get past the pair of them, you were not only playing well, you were competing well. Let's do the quick fire round, John. Favorite movie: The Big Sleep with Humphrey Bogart. Best holiday destination you've Mauritius. ever been to? Mauritius. That was, that was your honeymoon, wasn't it? Honeymoon, but we've been back twice since. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love it. All-time favorite TV show. Um, match of the day. Best golf course you've ever played? Formby. Nice and local. <laughs> and your favourite type of music? Um, I've gone more. I've gone more broad spectrum now. Probably everything, but it used to be soul and funk. I used to like used to like a bit of early stuff and that in the eighties. But I've probably gone more broad now. A fantastic performance Eight by the three. world champion, who now adds the UK crown to his titles. Eighty-three. <laughs> And Jimmy White comes forward, shakes the hand of John Pard, who, with a brilliant 83, goes out a 16 frame to 13 winner and claims the UK title from 1991. Ladies and gentlemen, a magnificent final. Will you show your appreciation to both players, Jimmy White and John Pard? We've talked about your great days, John, and they went on a long time. Inevitably, though, decline comes to everyone. So how hard did you find that? You just become accepting of it, really. My manager cajoled me into carrying on for a few seasons left. I actually had a match with Sean Murphy at the Crucible where I was at 8 each going into the final session, and I actually played really decent in that tournament, and I wanted to pack in then. And he sort of cajoled me to carrying on, saying, well, what else are you going to do? And I felt, I felt like that was a good place to go out, and I really should have stuck to my guns then and said... That'll do, I'll go then. But I carried on for a couple of years, messing around in qualifiers and bits and bobs, not really enjoying it. Um, and when your long game goes, it's un- it's debilitating. And it's certainly, I mean, I, I don't know, I can't speak for Stephen, but his long game won't be like what it was when he was in his pump, and that's how he used to get in. Um, so that's the, uh, it, 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 you sort of like lose a, part, a department of your, of your armoury, and it's not very pleasant going into a tournament. Like, a, you know, I'd go to the Crucible, and no, I couldn't really lock, knock a long ball in, so I'd have to find other ways to play. Um and I wasn't totally enamoured by doing that. I'd like to have gone in and played attacking stuff, but um, it's it's a it's a weird thing. I mean, these boys now. I mean, Williams and and Ronnie and John Higgins up to. I mean, wow, how how well have they carried on into the mid forties to be playing the way they are? Because to be honest with you, in the, in the, the the good old days, you'd be well finished by the time you got to your forty fortieth birthday. And when the end did come for you, John, were you happy with your career? Yeah. Um, the only regret I've got is not winning the Masters. It's the only one. Three times. Three finest. times, yeah. Mm. I had one year where I'd been beating Stephen and I got there and I lost the tip and after the semi final the tip split. And I had to play the following day with an absolute pillow on the end of my queue and it's I think he beat me nine four or something. But I'd been beating him and I was actually confident I was I was gonna go in there with a big chance. But you know, it taught me a lesson and I started taking all the old tips off the queues in the in the club and keeping a little batch of them because I learned my lesson that that'll never happen again. And the funny thing is, it never did. <laughs> but it was one of those strange situations where, you know, it happened and I've got to live with it. 
You mentioned Formby there as your favourite golf course. That reflects the fact that I don't think you've ever actually left the Liverpool area. You've always lived there, and it seems to be that sort of place that people just can't draw themselves away from. Well, I started off in Penny Lane, mm. uh, then moved across the road from Strawberry Fields, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. uh, so um, I always joke I couldn't find a house in Abbey Road, so I moved to Formby, but... Um, it's lovely um, where we are is great I've got red squirrels bouncing around the garden I've got my golf course next door it's been lovely schools for the kids to grow up and go to and um, you know we're lucky enough to have a nice house and uh, my wife's a member of the golf club it's a, it's a lovely spot to be and I'm very happy with my lot and you mentioned your children there Josh and Ellie they are grown up now what are they doing in life? Um, Josh is working in insurance he's doing mathematical algorithms which sounds far too clever for me uh, and Ellie's working for a tech company and she's doing rather well as well. So they're both, they're both good. They're both lovely human beings. They've never been a day's trouble either of them. Um, always had good school reports, uh, which is, I'd like to think for me and Karen is a is, um, testament to us bringing them up. But they're two lovely individuals and, uh, yeah, very proud of those two. Do you think you might be the happiest man in snooker, John? You always seem so pleased with your life and everything it's given you and continues to give you. I don't like being miserable. I don't mm-hmm. see what's the point. In it. You're, not, you're only here once. What's, what's the point in being miserable about it? I mean, I'm, listen, I don't go around with a permanent smile on my face, but it's just, you know, I get up in the morning. I am definitely a glass half full. Definitely. Well, you've every reason to be because you had a great career and you're still very much involved in the game with the TV work and everything, and we hope you will be for a long time. Thanks so much for joining us on the World Snooker Tour podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. Cheers. Next week, it's part-time snooker professional, part-time businessman, and one-time crucible player Andrew Padgett, including reflections on a major health scare which could have ended his career, or worse. We was there one night and I felt this little pain. I was like, what is that? Um, And all of a sudden, I'm rushed into hospital and and the the doctor says, well, how are you... How you decided to come in like this is uh, ironic, but if you didn't, then uh, by the morning you'd have been gone because obviously all the stuff was coming out inside me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the, that was uh, a day I don't want to remember, to be honest. So that's coming up next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast. And don't forget our bonus content, The 147, rounding up the week's snooker headlines in 147 seconds, out every Tuesday and available to download at wst.tv. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and goodbye.